Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and today we're pleased to have with a special guest Ben Jack, who's the Programme Director at Common Seas, to talk about his organisation's new and frankly alarming discovery of microplastics in human blood. Joining us is EIA Ocean Campaigner Tom Gabbage, as we talk about Common Seas findings and how this groundbreaking work might contribute to efforts to secure a robust global plastics treaty. Ben, Tom, welcome, and thanks very much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Pleasure. Great, thanks, Paul, and thanks to the EIA for having me. It's, it's great to have you here. Um, now, Ben, to get us started, perhaps you give our listeners a quick recap of what your organisation's found. Yeah, of course. Um, I think most people listening will be all too familiar with uh, the plastic pollution that's sort of piling up in every recess of the natural world. So from the top of Everest right down to the deepest ocean trench. Um, but three years ago, Common Seas convened a group of ex- experts to explore the evidence and what we know about the plastic pollution in our own bodies. And the conclusion was essentially that there's enough we know about our kind of body's increasing exposure to plastic to care, but that research is chronically underfunded and we lack some of the basic analytical methodologies required to detect and measure these tiny fragments of plastic that our body's being exposed to. So we established blood type plastic and we commissioned some research. And last month we we published this paper that provided the first proof ever that tiny pieces of plastic, so the plastic that is shared from things all around us and either ingested or inhaled, is able to cross over into our blood. Um, So we tested 22 people and we looked only for a handful of plastic so far and we basically found four major production polymers. So PET, people will be quite familiar with um, from things like plastic drinks bottles. It's also the plastic that's spun into polyester that makes so many of our clothes and textiles. We found that in about half of the people we tested. We also found polystyrene. So that's probably, I guess most people will be familiar with it from expanded polystyrene. So this foam we use to insulate our our coffee or our takeaway. Uh, But people will also find it in children's toys, yogurt pots, whole range of different household consumables. We found polyethylene, and that's used for everyday items like milk bottles, but also sort of thin, flexible plastics like grocery bags. And we also found PMMA, which most people will know as acrylic. And that's also used in things like paints, and interestingly, in things like medical transplants, like hip transplants. So yeah, this was the first time that that plastic particles have been found in in blood and it's basically the strongest evidence we have today of the extent to which plastic is not just polluting our ocean and our and our environment but also our bodies for for the layman out there or layperson out there particularly myself um how does it actually get into our blood in the first place is this a matter of us eating and drinking it into ourselves um or are there other ways of it getting into us yeah it's a great question paul and um We don't know definitively what items and behaviors are are driving our body's contamination. So what the study can tell us is the types of plastic and the amount of that plastic we found. But I suppose the the types of plastic can give us clues as to the things that might be causing exposure. So we know that plastic can get into our body in a few different ways. It can 
be um, from the air that we breathe and the food that we eat and the and and things that we drink and consume um, that way. And essentially, a lot of the plastics we're finding are widely used in in, in food and beverage packaging, but they're also finding a whole host of different materials around the home. So it's really hard to definitively say at the moment, you know, which is the Where's the risk? Where's the risk of exposure? Where's the most absorbed plastic um, coming from? And that's a key research question that we need to look at in future. And you know, it's why one of the, the things that we're asking for now is for further research funding to be unlocked to really understand what drives exposure and how much we, we should be concerned about this finding. I think it's, you know, it's really important to kind of point out that this is a, a brand new methodology. So as well as delivering this startling finding that there's plastic in the blood, it also opens the door to many important new research opportunities to understand kind of where the plastic's coming from, what thresholds we should be worried about in terms of human exposure and the potential harm that that might cause. Well, I understand that the um, the work itself is quite unique and has required an entirely new process um, to be able to do this analysis and that you yourself actually took part in the research. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I was one of the first guinea pigs uh, for our researchers at um, VU Amsterdam who developed this methodology. Um, yeah, and as I mentioned, that was that was a significant step because there wasn't this methodology available before. So that's going to lead on to a whole series of new studies. And um, I guess, yeah, it was a surreal moment, to be honest, to find out there was plastic in, in, in my blood. I've been working on plastic pollution as an issue now for for many many years I, I suppose i wasn't really expecting to get a whole new wake-up call on the need for us to end plastic pollution i mean it, it was it was sort of simultaneously shocking and at the same time entirely blindingly obvious that as our plastic you know as our planet fills up with plastic you know so too does our bodies you know it's that reminder that we're all part of the natural world we're not separate from it uh, but it seemed to somehow really exemplify the another failure of this linear plastic system that we operate it's just another chapter in that bigger story around plastic where we see a harm that is so evident across plastics life cycle from production through to waste management and you know the pollution of all of our world's ecosystems how worried do you think that people should be about these findings i mean are there any likely medical impacts from microplastics being found in, in human blood it, well, in the blood of all of us, I guess. Um, I'm assuming that it's, if it's an environmental concern and we're all in the environment, we're all going to have that in us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to point out that we don't know enough yet about how plastic in our blood can affect our health. And, you know, that's why we have a petition calling for the establishment of a plastic and health research fund that we really want people's support to make that, like, that call really clear to decision makers. But I think... There's lots of pieces of, of evidence that suggests we should be concerned and perhaps it's sort of helpful to try and like pull together a few of them um, for your listener. I guess we know that workers who are exposed to high levels of plastic fibres in textile factories have an increased risk of things like respiratory diseases and cancer. We also have evidence from, from animal studies, so lab studies where animals are fed um, small pieces of plastic, uh, as well as human studies where people have been given plastic prosthetic implants, that when plastic gets into the body, it can cross membranes and spread into organs. We think that the tiniest specks of this plastic, so they're called the nanoplastics, they're sort of smaller than a micrometer, they're sort of bacteria-sized pieces of plastic, are able to actually enter cells and potentially disrupt cellular activity. Um, there are lab-based studies, for example, that show that microplastics can pass through placenta cells. And there's lots of evidence that shows that 
persistent particles, these, these kind of particles that the body's immune system can't break down, are associated with inflammation, you know, an immune response, and what's called um, oxidative stress, which is essentially uh, the body's inability to clear cell damaging free radicals, but it's a, a precursor to many chronic illnesses like diabetes, uh, cardiovascular and res respiratory illnesses. I guess the other thing to point out is that these aren't like benign particles floating around our body. We know that there are about 144 different endocrine disrupting chemicals that we put into these plastics that have effect on growth, sexual function, sleep, behavior, let alone links to a range of human diseases. And these particles themselves may act as a vector or a dispersal mechanism for pathogens that kind of hitch a ride on microplastics as we see in the natural world. So all of that kind of makes me think, okay, there's enough here to be worried. And I'm not alone, you know, um, EU's top scientific advisors have said that there's cause for genuine concern and precaution is needed. And of course, um, there's also a group of 80 academics, um, MPs, peers and NGOs, including the fantastic EIA, I should add, who have called for this funding to really understand what the risks are. I think the final point, Paul, if I may, just is we, we just want to take this finding in the context of where we are today in our relationship with plastic. So, I mean, Tom, you'll know this better than me. I think we, may around, we make around, what, 370 million tonnes of plastic today, but at current rates, we're expecting that plastic to, to double or triple by 2050. And so if today uh, the human body is ingesting about 100 million tiny specks, uh, sorry, 100,000 tiny specks of plastic in a day, and is potentially exposed to a total load of as much as 100 million, what happens as humanity's use of plastic continues to rise and rise? Does our body's exposure continue to increase? Well, I think it's a big question, but I think it's very likely. I suppose uh, as well, just to sort of complement that, um there are a lot of uncertainties and there's no there's no point denying that you know there are enormous uncertainties with respect to the impact of microplastics on human health like ben said but we know that microplastics do can or can cause damage to human cells in lot through lots of different mechanisms you know it's not just cytotoxicity in terms of toxicity on the cell but they can also cause immune responses and inflammation that ben says is linked to all sorts of of different conditions so at this stage it is kind of about reading between the lines and sort of connecting the dots of that constellation because the evidence is there um, but it's going to take a very very long time to sort of formally establish it within scientific channels and so what we know what we know is that currently the 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 the, um, the concentrations of microplastics that we're exposed to on a daily basis are enough to cause that kind of damage. So we can see that in lab studies where you take human cells and you manipulate them in a lab and you expose them to microplastics, they have this damage that's done to them. And I suppose the argument on the other side is that, is that actually happening in our body? Um, but because there's no epidemiological or sort of patterns of disease data for microplastics, these sorts of lab studies are really some of the best evidence that we have as well um, that microplastics can be undermining human health but like Ben said it's super difficult to determine if microplastics are um, a sort of uh, causing like a 20% increase in cancer or you know something like that this is much more difficult to determine because it's unethical to pump people full of microplastics <laughs> see what happens and the time scale for these studies is, is very long yeah, that's right. I mean, we, it's sort of human, long-term human biomonitoring studies could be a decade away. You know, we, we really can't wait that long. And whilst there is a real need for us to respond immediately to some of the, the questions that this study raises, we've got enough, we know, 
to act exactly, now. Yeah. And, and it's just another, another of the many reasons why we need to uh, address our kind of toxic love affair with plastics, frankly, the same material that is causing problems across its entire value chain as well. So, so, so what, what's um, Common Seas planning to do with this research? Um, what, what's next um, for, for your work in this field? Um, so yeah, we've set up a, a campaign called Blood Type Plastic, and essentially what that's doing is drawing attention to this, this really groundbreaking discovery, and it's also making sure, importantly, that it's a finding that can't be ignored. Um, and we really want people to help us to do this. So the first thing is we think we have a right to know what this plastic is doing to our bodies. And that's why we're calling on businesses and government around the world to fund the next stage research into the human health impacts of plastic. And that's something actually that it'd be great for people to get involved with. It's been an amazing thing. We launched a petition, I think last week, and we've already got 55,000 people calling on the UK government to establish a plastic and health research fund. Um, so that's, you know, it's been astonishing to see this message land with people who kind of implicitly realize that something needs to be done. And so we'd really love people to help us with that. And bear in mind, actually, you know, we're asking for 0.1% of the UK's total R&D budget at the moment. We're not asking for a huge chunk of cash we're just saying there's enough to be concerned that it takes immediate steps now to research who's most exposed what are the thresholds for when um, this exposure is going to cause health problems and what are the health risks associated with plastic increasingly entering our bodies excellent stuff i presume people can find that um, petition link from your own website yeah yeah, there's actually a, um, a, a specific landing page. So if people go to uh, commonseas.com forward slash blood type plastic, they'll be able to um, navigate to it from there. Um, and there's also a whole host of other bits of information, not only about the, just the science, but also about the sort of second key message that we want to get through, which, you know, as Tom has already made really clear in his comments, is that we know enough to act now. And this is just one of many compelling reasons why we need to do so. So that means for us, that means reducing our body's exposure by um, governments phasing out single-use plastic, uh, investing in refill and reuse systems, and committing to binding targets and robust reporting methods to end plastic pollution. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that. I'll, I'll make a point to include the link to the petition at the bottom of the page. We host this on, on our website as well, so people will be able to find it from there also. Uh, Tom, if I could bring you in here for a moment. Uh, you and your colleagues in our ocean team have spent a long time working towards securing a global plastics treaty. Uh, a big part of that, I gather, was the, the recent scientist declaration, which was backed, I think, by some 500 individuals and 37 institutions which has urged decision makers to follow the science in pursuit of such a treaty. How helpful do you think Common Sea's findings will be in pursuit of that? Well, I think it will be hugely helpful. Um, I suppose human, human health is really one of the newest. Uh, it's one of the most important, but it's also one of the least understood areas um, of plastics research. Um, and this piece, this piece of work particularly has provided, I think, a really, really critical reference point um, for people to rally behind. Like Ben said, so it's a wake-up call as if we needed another one. Um, so with the realization of, of the UNEA resolution, the UN Environment Assembly resolution five, called 512, uh, calls for a, a negotiating committee um, to convene over the next couple of years and negotiate a new legally binding treaty on plastics. This is very, very exciting. It's been heralded as, as the biggest moment in, in uh, global uh, international environmental law since the Paris Agreement. Um, and so we, 
we're potentially sitting on the dawn of a new horizon really um where we as a species redefine our relationship with plastics as a material whereby we eliminate all the negative externalities and we make sure that we uh, retain all the benefits that that you know some of them can provide so i mean over the long term i mean we could literally have a radically different plastics economy um where where we can phase down virgin production where we have strict global criteria on sustainability of plastic products or we ban single-use applications when all but a very uh, limited number of applications say medical um, things like waste colonialism which is essentially shipping global north plastic waste to the global south um, externalizing the human environmental costs will no longer need to take place because we wouldn't have the overcapacity of production and consumption. Uh, our waste management systems won't be overwhelmed. Um, we can have an increased transparency in use of chemicals. Like Ben was mentioning, thousands of chemicals can be used in plastics. This treaty has the, has the opportunity to decisively um, tackle chemical safety in plastics by, by regulating groups of chemicals and ensuring that anything that is used is safe for human health. Um, and so manufacturers having to prove that they're safe before they before they go to market. I suppose another another example of how this work could specifically contribute towards the treaty, an ambitious global treaty, is 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 the need for a dedicated scientific mechanism. So at the moment we have um, we have uh, we have a resolution that that uh, mentions the, the the possibility to to discuss a dedicated subsidiary scientific body, which essentially sit within the treaty and that would do some specific work uh, to advise the policy and ensure evidence based decision making. And if there was ever a, an example of, of of why we need that, I think this is it: is that we need dedicated and funding. Um, not just from national governments, which is also very important, but we need a multilateral fund um, that can also sort of distribute funding globally to ensure that we are elucidating the impacts of, of plastic pollution on our health. This is enormously important, and some could argue even a human right. Um, but yeah, I think plastics in our blood will add to that sort of weight of evidence um, that we need. We need a really ambitious global treaty. We managed to get a reference to human health within the resolution, which was quite groundbreaking. Um, and that only adds to that sort of evidence for why that was a good idea, I guess. Um, but I suppose it also makes incentives for decision makers to really listen to scientific experts and to heed their advice. Um, the scientist declaration, which we now have 500 science, uh, scientific experts from all over the world, five continents, multicultural, uh, multidisciplinary group, is a perfect example of this. Uh, and we really, really urge decision makers to ensure that they listen to the experts um, uh, when, they, when they devise policy responses. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned the um, the UN Environment Assembly um, and, and when it met in Nairobi and, and what an historic commitment it was to negotiate the Plastics Pollution Treaty. But of course, that's just the start of the process, not really the end game in itself. Um, we've got, I gather, two years, is, is that right? Till um, the, the, they're due to report back and, and come up with some language for such a treaty. So what, what are the next steps in that, in that process? Well, it will be at least, at least two years. Um, so I suppose the original resolution that went to UNEA um, for negotiations said by UNEA 6, which was 2024, around February, March time. The final resolutions called for an ambition to finish the negotiations before the end of 2024, which is still, uh, it was still a fairly ambitious timeline. It's not impossible when we look at something like the Montreal Protocol, uh, which was negotiated in nine months. Uh, it is definitely possible. It's a matter of political will, um, but it is an ambitious timeline. There, and there is an enormous amount to do. Um, I suppose the next steps will be the open-ended 
working group and we just got the confirmed dates for that uh, very recently um, end of May uh, until early June there'll be a meeting to prepare for the INC the INC is the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee um, that will convene um, four or five times maybe more if needed uh, to to negotiate the provisions of a new of a new global treaty um, so that first meeting will probably take place sort of November December this year the resolution says the second half of 2022 so that would sort of make sense um, and then and then from there we've got like a rough idea of when when those meetings might be but it's, it's the open-ended working group at the end of May that will really decide on exactly when these meetings will take place and where and how um, and what the agenda should be. But all of that, all of this that we've discussed, I suppose is only possible if countries take really ambitious stances throughout the negotiations. Um, so I suppose our message to any decision makers listening is, is please follow the science, please follow the evidence. Um, our, our, our health um, and quite literally the habitability of our planet uh, depends on it. Um, also, if you're an organization that's listening and wants to get involved, uh, please visit the Break Free From Plastics website uh, and just send a message and, um, and that will be seen too. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you very much for that. And um, Ben, I hope you'll join us again in the future and give us an update on how your campaign and petition are progressing. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been great talking to you both. It's been a pleasure. So Ben and Tom, thank you both very much for joining us today. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, uh, please watch this space for future episodes and do check out our website at aia-international.org to find out more about our work. And don't forget to look at the uh, bottom of the page where this podcast appears to find the address to join the petition or common seas. Thanks very much for joining us and wherever you are, stay safe out there.